Well, since it is the beginning of a new year, I imagine some of you have New Year's resolutions. And if you do, I want to say, since it is January 2nd, congratulations. You're doing great. (laughs) I didn't adopt any New Year's resolutions this year, I suppose, because I know I'm just going to break them. So I don't have any. And uh, in particular, at the risk of overstatement, I don't have any when it comes to my Christian life. Zero spiritual resolutions, spiritually speaking. Why would I say that? Aren't there things we're supposed to do? Aren't there things that we're supposed to have as goals as Christians? Well, certainly that's the case. That's why I said at the risk of oversimplification. But as Christians, we need to remember that we will never be resolute enough. We will never make strong enough spiritual commitments. We will not make it past January 2nd, if you will, since it's the 2nd of January. What we need to remember as Christians, and I need to remember as a Christian pastor, is that there is only one perfectly resolute one, and his name is not Pat, Mary, Lisa, Sally, Bill, or Joe, or whatever your name is. His name is Jesus. And the Bible says this about him in his resoluteness. I love it. It says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he faced the most difficult, challenging, next to impossible task, let's say resolution, and he was perfectly successful. He endured the cross. That was his mission. He was, in fact, successful. And so let's not look to ourselves when it comes to being right with God or maintaining a relationship with God. Let's make sure we understand that we're Christians. And we look to the one and only perfectly resolute one. And that's our resolution. So I overstated things because we actually, in that same very text, Hebrews chapter 12, you don't need to go there, it won't be our text, but in that very same text that talks about the resoluteness of Jesus, it does give us a resolution, if you will. And it says this, looking to Jesus. That is what I want to do this year. That's what I want to do as a Christian, as a Christian pastor. I want to encourage you to do. It's what we always want to be doing, but we always seem to forget. Looking to Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, as some translations put it. Why would we need to be resolute in that? Because he's the only one who's perfectly resolute. He has accomplished a perfect redemption. He is a perfect mediator. He is the one who brings us justification, sanctification, glorification, and any other important nations. Anything you need, He has accomplished. And so the author to Hebrews says to the Hebrew believers, fix your eyes on Jesus. And what's so intriguing about that text in Hebrews chapter 12, it's actually using metaphors that talk about physical activities like some of your New Year's resolutions. We're to run the race that's set before us. How do we live the Christian life? It's likened to running a race. 
the way according to that text that we run the race that's set before us. We don't walk off the track. We don't quit. We're not disqualified. The way we run the race that's set before us, he says, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so let's keep this real simple. What we want to do is fix our eyes on Jesus. I hope we do lots of other things. Don't get me wrong. I was overstating things. But first and foremost, we have to remember our resolution needs to be not to do, 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 try, 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 try. It is to look, 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 look on the one who has accomplished perfect redemption. Let's close the service in prayer. (laughs) That's the introduction for us today to look at the 27th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And we're looking at the latter portion of Matthew's gospel account in chapter 27. And we're looking at three of the final scenes. There are more than three final scenes. But three of the final scenes at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry give us reasons to keep our eyes fixed on him. So if our task is to keep our eyes fixed on him, here from these scenes, we have some reasons. Reason number one, the crucifixion of Jesus. Reason number two, the death of Jesus. Reason number three, the burial of Jesus. I'm not sure we'll get to all three of those this morning, but if we do, then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the fourth, but surely not today, the resurrection of Jesus. So why would we want to fix our eyes on him? Because of his crucifixion, what he did on our behalf. Because of his burial, what he does on our behalf. So as we look to this gospel account, let's remember he's doing this and he's doing this for us so that we might know that his work is perfect, complete, sufficient, fulfilling everything necessary. Well, I don't think we need a big review here. Um, The final words of Matthew 27, 31, which is where we were a couple of weeks ago when we left this, say, and he, and they led him away to crucify him. That's where we left off. They lead him away to crucify him. So now let's look at this first scene for us today, the crucifixion. And we're going to pick it up in verse 32. If you have a Bible, you can find Matthew 27. We'll look at verses 32. Lord willing, we'll go all the way to 66, but I'm not super self-confident. Verse 32 says, we're talking about crucifixion, and they, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. From what we know, it's somewhat common. So if the person being crucified, dying an awful death, if they're unable to carry the cross beam, this section, to where they're actually going to be crucified, they may enlist someone else. It would have been a denigrating task. It would have been below Roman citizenship. It would have been for a criminal. It would have been for someone you wanted to make an example out of. It would be for perhaps someone who's a nobody. And we do kind of have the nobody language there. They they found a man. Seems pretty generic, but it's not altogether generic in God's plan and purpose. A man of Cyrene, Simon by name. So we actually do have his name. 
And if he's a Cyrene, that means he's from Africa. Kind of strange to have the African there amidst the Jews. I don't want to get us too slowed down here because we got a lot to do. But some say, well, that's because he was a Jewish person who had been dispersed and had been living in Africa. Maybe. But it doesn't actually say that. So I'm going to opt for a different option. He's Simon of Cyrene. I'm going to take it. He's a Cyrene because that's what the text says. I'm going to take it. He's an African. Come to believe in Yahweh, the one true and living God. And he happens to be there during Passover in Jerusalem as a believer in the one true living God. But by ethnicity background, he's not a Jew. And I think it's worth noting the identification with Jesus. So there he is, and maybe they're going to make a spectacle out of him. They don't care about him. But I can't help but thinking ahead that this identification with Jesus... Let's make an assumption that he's a believer. That is an assumption I know. That Jesus will be the one who will make atonement for those he represents, those he associates with from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Not only for the Jews. And I'll read that into this text happily. Why do we need to know he's from Libya? Because the Savior will represent on the actual atoning cross, people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. He's the Savior of the world. He's not only the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior for Jews and Gentiles. Let's move on. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it couple options there. He wouldn't drink it because he didn't want to numb the pain. That would be true. But if it's quoting Psalm 69, which it appears to be, Psalm 69 is talking about mixed with something as an insult. Listen to what it says in Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The actual psalm isn't so much talking about what, well, he doesn't want to dull the pain, though that would be true. It's insulting. Let's give him bad food and let's give him bad wine because he is unworthy. Because he is someone we look down upon and we want to insult him. They're giving him bad wine because he is no royalty in their eyes. 35 says, and when they had crucified him, I've always found it strange. Here we have the most horrific, awful, horrendous act ever committed. And there's a comma and it keeps going. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Well, we'll come back to the significance of crucifixion, but how odd we move on so quickly. That's from our psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 22, Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The original script of Psalm 22 is written for the ultimate David, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Christ, who would be praised and worshipped. Yes, ultimately. But not in the short run. Then it says in 36, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. You sit down when your work is done. The Bible actually uses that imagery quite often. 
They're not standing because they're in the presence of the king. They're not standing in respect and awe for the king. No, their work is done. Time for R&R, relaxation. We're, We're done here. 37 says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus. Remember, that means Yahweh saves. God saves. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 121. This is Jesus, God's Savior. The Jewish Savior, if you will. The King of the Jews. And they sit mockingly with the mocking sign before the king, these Romans do. What a savior. What a king to deliver the people of Israel from Roman occupation and oppression. We'll just sit down and see how that goes. It's disturbing. It's meant to be disturbing. It's awful. It's meant to be awful. It's fulfilling. It's meant to be fulfilling. As in a script being read, unfolding as intended. What God means for good, human beings certainly mean for bad. He sure doesn't look like a great Messiah. Yet it it is sure that he is. 38 says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. I don't know about you, but as a young child I, and thinking about Jesus, I didn't know a lot. I'll claim the blame for that. I didn't know a lot, but I was almost under the impression since Jesus is the unique Savior, and I did believe that even though I wasn't trusting in Him for my salvation. If He's the unique Savior, the one and only Savior, the one and only mediator, I was under the impression, wrongfully, but under the impression that Jesus was the only one who'd ever been crucified. I know it's right there in the text. He's crucified in between two others who were crucified. But I was under this impression because he's a unique person. Now I know. And he's doing something unique himself. Now I know. But I I had this view of crucifixion, like since it's this horrific form of death, and it is, that he was the only one ever crucified. Maybe you've thought the same thing. Maybe not. But he's crucified in between two, it says, robbers. We should also know that thousands and thousands of people were crucified. Titus Vespasian, kind of hard to say, crucified so many Jews in AD 70, so after this, but not long after this, that they didn't have enough crosses to crucify all of the Jews that he crucified. Crucifixion was not the norm. It was for, our text says robbers. It's the word that's used. It's a fine idea. But but you, you didn't get crucified for petty theft. You got crucified for things by the Romans. You got crucified for things like insurrection. Like somebody died while you were trying to plot and do something or you were plotting to try to overthrow the government. Something that they would have seen as heinous, awful, a threat to them. And so this wasn't that they stole some jelly beans, uh, you know, from the money changers. This is no petty theft kind of thing. These, These are people we want to make an example out of. These are people who are opposing Caesar ultimately or those under him. And so Jesus is crucified between these two really bad actors. And so he, the king, and we know that he really is, is being mocked 
you threaten us, you claim to be a king, your followers claim that you're a king, any kind of threat to us, here's what happens. We should know that uniqueness doesn't come from the fact that he was crucified, although it is a horrific death. Don't get me wrong. We're going to see uniqueness is because of who he is and because of what he's going to accomplish, which is why we fix our eyes on him. How about verse 39? And those who passed by derided him. Not a word we use very often. They make fun. They mock. They scorn. They derided him, wagging their heads. They're so into this that they're making all these overdramatic expressions. 40 says, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Think John chapter 2. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Well, that's not exactly what he said. It's weird how the mind remembers things. He's the one who said that destroy this temple as in himself and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they equated it with the temple. But here they're remembering something and they're remembering something strangely, but rightfully in a certain sense. Let me ask you. When he, the temple, is destroyed, will he rebuild it in three days? He will. He will. Notice the emphasis on save. Save yourself. He definitely will. How about verse 41? So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, so all these Jewish religious leaders, mocked him, saying in verse 42, he saved others, he delivered others. He did amazing things for other people, like raising the dead. He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. I wrote in my margin, really? We know too much about the human heart. I would remind you that Jesus said that these things are going to happen. And I'm going to quote, this is Matthew 26, verse 54. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The verse before that, I won't take the time to quote it. All I have to do is ask And my father will rain down terror from heaven. I'm paraphrasing. With myriads and myriads of angels. He's not powerless. He's doing what he's doing voluntarily so as to fulfill the scriptures, so as to bring atonement for us. It's not that he is helpless. Matthew 26, 53, and 54. He's in charge. He's in control of all of this. Keep that in mind from Matthew 26. Then verse 43 says, let's keep going. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. See, I've been using that word interchangeably uh, as somewhat of a synonym for saved. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, that would be proof. If God delivered him, that would prove that he's the son. That would prove that God likes what he's up to. For he said, I am the son of God. That's Psalm 22.8. They know the Messianic Psalm. 
All right, you're the Messiah. Here's a Messianic text. If God is pleased with you, you'll be delivered. Now, actually, it is true. Psalm 22. And he will be delivered. But in actuality, it's going to be three days later. And it's going to be in chapter 28. Interesting how they're quoting Bible verses. They know Bible verses. Wrongly understanding them. How about verse 44? And the robbers, these insurrectionists who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So before we move on to this next reason to keep your eyes fixed on him, here we have crucifixion. I I think it's probably appropriate for us to observe that you have a pretty good, and I don't mean good in a good sense, a pretty fair sampling of humanity. So we ended with the kind of dregs of society, the bad actors, the guys being crucified. Though they may have been Jewish heroes opposing the Roman government, but generally speaking, given the way they're labeled, we're going to see them, at least in the Roman eyes. They're the bad actors. Then you have the Jewish religious leaders who represent the people. All different kinds of people involved here. So the sinfulness of the human heart isn't just for insurrectionists. All the different kinds of religious people, the maybe not so religious people, not people from Israel, people from outside of Israel, all kind of associated and involved here in this scene. We have the best of society, if you will. We have the worst of society, if you will. Universal opposition to Jesus. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Number two, we have the death of Jesus. The next scene is the death scene. But before we get to actually looking at verse 45, I have a question for you. Why do we have death? We're going to see the death of Jesus. What's the cause of death? Well, if you're biblically literate, the cause of death is in old age. The cause of death is clearly in the Bible, sin. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is what? It's death. So if you violate God's commandments, if you don't do what he says, there's a just consequence for opposing the author of life and the king and the sovereign. It's death. It's death. That's Romans 6. And Romans 5 would help us to understand that it's not necessarily as in every single individual who sins, once they sin the first time, now they earn death. Actually, we go back further in Romans 5. We're talking about all of humanity represented by the first Adam led the human race into sin, leading to condemnation, leading to death. And so we're, we're set up to die because of sin from the very beginning before I personally commit my own first sin. So when Jesus dies, I want you in a certain sense at first to be saying, no, no, what, what, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. 
Jesus shouldn't be dying because it's Jesus Christ, as the Bible says, the righteous, the law upholder. Jesus, who, who only ever did what is right. Jesus should, don't quote me out of context, Jesus shouldn't be dying. It's all kinds of wrong. Don't quote me out of context, it shouldn't be. And what I mean is, if we're talking about him getting what he deserves. So we, we have to be thinking, Jesus is going to die? It makes sense that Adam died. It makes sense that everybody he represented dies. But here we have the unique virgin conceived one who only ever did what is right to fulfill all righteousness. He ought not die. So then it poses the question, it begs the question, so why is he dying? He knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Okay, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, noon to 3 p.m., we're told darkness when there ought not be darkness. If we were to sample the Old Testament, like in Amos chapter 8 or Exodus chapter 10, it's associated with judgment. It's associated with fear. It's associated, it's, it's apocalyptic, if you want that word. Uh, there's something cataclysmic and, and awful happening when there's darkness, when there ought not be darkness. It gets everybody's attention. And there is precedent in the Old Testament for it being associated with a judgment. Judgment on the people, and when it's dark, when it ought not be dark, and this is happening, and Jesus is on the cross, I think we should think, judgment upon humanity, what in the world are you doing? But also, we're going to see, what? Judgment upon the representative, the voluntary representative upon the Son. And so here we have the key text of the whole thing, verse 46, don't miss it. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Notice the question mark. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. I want you to think with me about this. The question that he asks is not one of inquiry, even though there's a question mark, strictly speaking. Why would I say that? Because Jesus knows the answer. It's on account of our sins. Matthew 20, 28. So in the same flow of the narrative, even as the Son of Man came to be, not to be served, but to serve, and listen to this carefully, and to give his life, that is in death, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why I say this is strictly speaking not an inquiry. He knows why he's here. His face has been set toward Jerusalem. He's given his life as a substitute, as a ransom for, in place of the many, in place of sinners. He knows what the Old Testament teaches, like no one has ever known what the Old Testament teaches. 
quoted in the New Testament, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13. I like what one Bible student said about this. God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about the punishment in generations past. He had forgiven sins and stored up his righteous anger against those sins. But at the cross, the fury of all that stored up wrath. See, that's the, that's why against sin was unleashed against God's own son. He's the substitute. He's there on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him. Everyone who would ever trust in him. Alive then, alive in the past, alive now, alive in the future. The wrath, the undiluted, full force, mixed, undiluted wrath of God. The question is not one of doubt. Why have you done this? And are you going to leave me here as in I'm doubting? Because he had always perfectly trusted in his father and his father's goodness. And I'm going to be real careful on this one. And and maybe now if if you just need to check out, you can go for it. If you already have, shame on you. (laughs) Strictly speaking, theologians talk about, sane Bible-believing, sane-minded theologians talk about, strictly speaking, it's not even a cry of desperation. And the reason they say that, and I, I use that word, I'll probably use it today, I'm going to say it was desperation. But if I'm careful and reading my notes, it's not desperation if by desperation things are lying in the balance. You don't know how it's going to end. Jesus always and forever was certain of his own deliverance. That's why nitpicky theologians that try to get us to really think about this. If we mean desperation as in, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. That's why I'm saying, why have you forsaken me? Always Jesus even talked about his resurrection. Psalm 22 guarantees, as a matter of fact, resurrection and worldwide generation to generation praise for him, accomplishing his work and living to tell about it. So whether you're reading Francis Turretin or Louis Burkhoff, no despair. That cry was a cry of despair. Pat's probably going to say. But you can say, Pat, what do you mean by despair? <laughs> it's the cry because it's awful, because it's God's wrath, because he, he's experiencing what we deserve. We deserve, we deserve eternal condemnation for our sins. It's horrific and awful. But just be careful, I guess, the takeaway is how far you want to dramatize it because he knows full well without taking away in the least bit how awful it is, he actually always knows it's going to end well. I liked what R.C. Sproul said about this. He's not complaining about the crown of thorns wedged on his head. As awful as that would have been, this is far beyond the physical pain. Thousands and thousands of people have been crucified. He's being crucified in between two others. 
He and he alone is the one who is giving himself as a ransom for many. The spiritual reality is the gravity of it all. The mediator is being judged. This is judicial. This is wrath of God. Francis Turretin, again, a theologian who I really admire and like, says it is Gehennel. It is hellish. One more good quotation. In a short period of time, Jesus bore the infinite wrath against sin to the very end. This is why Christians are called to fix their eyes on Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How do we know God loves us? The Bible actually says, this is how we know. And this is the way God chose to show his love for us. Right here. Before our very eyes in this historical text. One more thing before we move on to verse 47. And I know we're slowing down here a little bit, then we'll speed back up. In the past, I've bought into um, the theory that says, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he used to always say father, and now uniquely he says God because he's being judged and he's not really functioning as son, father, that's broken, and now it's strictly judge. He's strictly saying God. And I've preached that before with great passion. But we're learning and growing as Christians. And if that's your view, by the way, may God bless you. You're in great company. But in reading Psalm 22, the my God is not distant. The my God statement's actually used at the beginning. It's distant in that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then if you keep reading in verse 10, the psalmist appeals to God's favor and he calls him my God. It's actually affectionate. It's actually close. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. You've always been there for me. You've always been my my loyal God. I've always been yours from the very, very beginning, Psalm 22 says. And so here's what I'm going to do. It doesn't preach quite as nicely. He's crying out to the God who is his God, close, personal, in perfect fellowship. My God, my God, my loyal God, my Covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. My God, my God, why, while we're close, have you forsaken me? It doesn't seem to make sense. It's because he's the substitute in place of bearing the wrath, experiencing the shame. That was Psalm 22, verse 10, by the way. Verse 47 says, let's keep going now. Let's get back at it. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And the answer to that is, no, he isn't. (laughs) Maybe it's because it kind of sounds like Elijah. Um, Also, Jewish tradition says at this point in time that maybe Elijah would come and rescue people. And Elijah would come and deliver 
Or it's because Elijah was to be a forerunner, a type of Elijah. We know it to be John the Baptist in the gospel accounts. Or maybe it's because there's a common mistake that happens amongst people who even say they believe the Bible and they think that somehow the Bible characters are the saviors. And I don't think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill based upon what we're about to read. We, we have this sinful propensity to put our focus not on the Savior, but upon those who need a Savior, and we treat them like they're saviors, whether it's Elijah or somebody else. Verse 48 says, And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Again, Psalm 69, 21. 49 says, But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Ah, I told you, I wasn't just making it up. They weren't the first people to think that non-saviors save. They, no doubt, aren't the last people who think non-saviors save. 50 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. John 19 indicates this is when he says it is finished. Matthew doesn't record it. And it says, and yielded up his spirit. Those are four really important words that he yielded up his spirit. Matthew doesn't elaborate, but if we were to cross-reference to John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. There's a whole lot going on there in between the lines. When Jesus yields up his spirit, is he murdered? Trick question, right? The people who crucify Jesus are referred to as murdering later on. But make no mistake about it. In another sense, he wasn't murdered. He yields up his spirit. He and he alone gives up his life. So Albert Schweitzer, even though he won a Nobel Peace Prize, couldn't have been more incorrect when he said, by Jesus saying this, we know that Jesus died in disillusionment. No one's faculties were ever working so well as Jesus, because he yields up his spirit. Okay, now for some of the effects... Verse 51, and behold, a curtain, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. A nice way of saying they had died. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, so he's going to look, Matthew's going to look even further to what will happen later. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. And many said, I see dead people. <laughs> okay, that's just me and M. Night Shyamalan. But what would that have been like? And this brings up tons of questions that we don't have the answers to. And we tend to focus on the wrong people. We, we focus on supporting cast. Like, was John the Baptist without a head and did he seek Herod out? <laughs> we, we don't know. But the, the the star of the show is Jesus, and that's the whole point. The point is, by Jesus being crucified, he's not like all the other people who've been crucified. Don't even mention Jesus' name in the same sentence as other religious leaders. It's meant to be extra, extraordinary. 
when this happened, the priests who were doing their priestly duties, and they were at this point in time, would have been able to see the curtain borrowed from the Old Testament tabernacle, now moved into the temple, separating the Holy of Holies. They would have been there to see this. Here, your time is done. No more temple. It, it, it's his flesh that is torn, Hebrews will tell us. He is the mediator of the new and better covenant. The earthquake to get everyone's attention. Uh, a preview of resurrection. He has resurrection power. All of these extraordinary things happening to show us, to get our attention to say, you know what? He's not like all the other people who've died. He's not like all the other people who've been crucified. We have a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, Hebrews chapter 10 says. It is why we will celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him because he's different. And here this cataclysmic, different, extraordinary thing happening at least, at least, at least gets our attention. What's going on? The point is that Jesus did something that can't be explained away. Foretaste. Trust him. Look to him. And then verse 54 says, When the centurion, so Roman guard, Roman centurion, and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake. I don't know how you see an earthquake. I've been in a pretty big one before. You don't see earthquakes, but you get the idea. You see the effects. You hear the, you, you hear it. It's awful. When they saw the earthquake and what took place. Okay, there we go. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So real people named to show that they're really seeing things that really happened in time, in space, in history. Maybe the ones society wouldn't have chosen, but all the more significance as to why I personally believe the Bible is true. Okay, finally, third scene, third reason to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus will be the burial. It will be the burial, and then we'll do resurrection next time. It says in verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. Ever so quickly, Mark tells us that he's a prominent member of the council. So he's a Jewish religious leader, Mark 15. Luke tells us that while he was one of them, he was against their opposition to Jesus, Luke 23. Luke also tells us that he legitimately was waiting for the messianic kingdom to come, unlike his peers. John calls him a secret disciple in John 19. And you know what we're about to see? He might have been a secret follower, a secret disciple, but he's not so secret anymore. How about verse 58? He went to Pilate, the secret disciple, the Jewish religious leader. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. No longer in hiding, no longer in secret. Pretty weird to be that bold about a Savior who's going to stay dead. Maybe he knows Psalm 22 better than the mockers did. He's not going to stay dead. 
Ever so quickly before we get to verse 59, a good cross-reference before we read 59 is Mark 15, verses 44 and 45, where Pilate is not going to give the body unless he's sure that Jesus is dead. And that's what's talked about in Mark's account. Once he's convinced that he is dead via the centurion, he summons the centurion, once he knows he's actually dead, then he releases the body. Verse 59 says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the mother of Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. According to Old Testament law, the, the, the land won't be defiled because the body's taken down and the body's going to be buried, Deuteronomy chapter 21. So that's a good Jewish way to think if you're Joseph of Arimathea. But not only that, it ends up fulfilling prophecy that he's buried in a wealthy person's grave. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, with a rich man in his death. Okay, 62, let's go quickly. 62 says, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, they're talking about Jesus, said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Such good memory. 64, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. I don't know if these people are going to get converted after resurrection or if they're going to die and get what they deserve. But we should all thank them. Thank you so much. This is their Genesis 50 moment. What human beings intend for evil, God intends for good. This only helps us to say, yep, make sure. Do all you can to make sure. Because he will be raised. One of the earliest church apologists, defenders of the faith, had this to say about our text. Oh, the sweet exchange. And you just thought that came up, somebody in our day came up with that. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the unfathomable accomplishment. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the wickedness of the many should be hidden in the one who is just. And that the righteousness of the one should justify the wicked many. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul says, first importance. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul, as a preacher says, I'm in a resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It means forgiveness. It means eternal life. He's going to be raised from the dead and He's promised that everyone who trusts in Him will be raised from the dead. Here He is. Voluntarily. On purpose. 
experiencing the undiluted full fury of the wrath of divine judgment so that you don't have to if you trust in Him, so that I don't have to if I trust in Him. It's absolutely staggering to the mind and heart. Fix your eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of the faith. Pray with me if you would. Father, help us to keep looking to Jesus and help us to remember that His work is done, finished, accomplished, that He did drink every last ounce, as it were, of Your justice, of Your fury, of the punishment that we deserve because He loved us. And gave himself up for us. Remind us again and again and again. Week in and week out. Day in and day out. Of our savior who is our champion. Who is our good and faithful elder brother. As the author of Hebrews says. Who is a perfect representative. And may that cause us. To thrive. And to be hopeful. And to be bold. And to be patient and all other good things that might bring you honor. As we prepare to eat and drink in remembrance of Christ, may it be a true remembering of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us, in whose name we pray, amen.